Welcome to the Why They Are So Angry podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Carol Francois, a proud baby boomer with over 30 years experience as an educator and learning leader. And I'm Courtney Square, your resident first generation millennial. Join us as we present an unvarnished look at systemic racism in America throughout history and up to modern times. We invite you to pull up a chair, put in your earbuds, and allow us to enlighten, educate, and explore the real reasons why Black African Americans are so angry. Because until you know the whole history, it isn't American history at all. Well, you know, Courtney, we can't talk about systemic racism in America without going back to the root of that evil, chattel slavery. Now, understanding how that evil promulgated requires some digging and some myth busting. So the first myth we have to address is the idea that slavery in America was confined to only the Southern states and that Northern states actually banned slavery. But that's completely bogus. At one point in colonial America, more than 40,000 enslaved people toiled in bondage in the ports and the small farms of the North. And in 1740, for example, one fifth of New York City population was enslaved. And in fact, I grew up in Pennsylvania and not once did my history books reveal that the beloved founder of the state, William Penn, had been a slave owner. Well, and Carol, I think a lot of people would be surprised to learn that slavery took place in the North. It's kind of it's one of those hidden history facts that you really have to dig for. But historian Edgar McManus writes to claim that the colonies would not have survived without slaves would be a distortion. There could be no doubt that the development was significantly speeded up by their labor. They provided a basic working force that transformed shaky outposts of an empire into areas of permanent settlement. And speaking of Pennsylvania, not only was owning slaves a part of society, free Black people, even in the early years of the Pennsylvania colony, um, were subjugated to rules that ran their lives. There was a law put in place that no Black person, whether slave or free, would benefit from trial by jury, and they had to be tried in special courts. Well, there you have it. Yet Pennsylvania was just one example of how northern states allowed for enslavement of Black people. Other states did it too. For instance, slaves were auctioned openly in the market house of Philadelphia, in the shadow of congregational churches in Rhode Island, in Boston taverns and warehouses, and weekly, sometimes even daily, in merchant coffee houses in New York. Now, the so-called Northern heroes of the American Revolution, such as John, Han John Hancock and Benjamin Franklin, they both bought and sold and owned Black people. William Henry Seward, Lincoln's anti-slavery Secretary of State during the Civil War, grew up in Orange County, New York, in a slave-owning family and amid neighbors who owned slaves. And the family of Abraham Lincoln also, when it lived in Pennsylvania in colonial times, owned slaves. And let's remember, the elements which characterized Southern slavery in the 19th century and which New England abolitionists claimed to view with abhorrence they were all present from early times in the North too. For instance, 
Practices such as breeding of slaves like animals for market or the crime of, of uh, enslaved mothers killing their infants uh, testified that slavery's brutalizing force was at work in New England too. Philadelphia brickmaker John Coates was just one of the Northern masters who kept his slave workers in iron collars with hackles. And newspaper advertisements in the North offer abundant evidence of enslaved families broken up by sales or inheritance. One Boston ad of 1732, for example, lists a 19-year-old woman and her six-month-old infant to be sold either, quote, together or apart. Oh, wow. Like when people sell chairs, like you can either buy the chair or you can buy the table with the chairs. Yep, yep, yep. You got it. Now, the first time chattel slavery, as we know it, was recognized in colonial America, it was in Massachusetts in the 16 in 1641 with the body of liberties. Slavery was legal not only in Massachusetts, but Connecticut when it incorporated the articles of the New England Confederation in 1643. Rhode Island enacted a similar law in 1652. So what that means for the North, specifically New England, slavery had been legal a whole generation before it was legal in the South. Now, that's a fact most people probably don't even conceive of. So thanks for that piece of information, Court. Now, owning and trading enslaved people wasn't the only way slavery benefited northern states. There was actually a conscious interdependency that connected slavery, wealth, and power between the North and the South. Now, that connection wasn't just because the enslaved people picked cotton that was shipped to the north and the northern textile mills made millions for slaveholders and mill owners. But historian Adrian Brettel wrote, it was more than that. Slavery also was crucial to the success of the booming banking business, particularly in New York, where financial products such as securities, bonds and mortgages were actually developed in order to continue the expansion of slavery. Wow, that's a a link a lot of people probably never thought to tie together. Now, I'm sure a lot of our listeners are sitting there perplexed, especially when we mentioned Pennsylvania in the talks of northern slavery because of the Quakers. The Quakers, especially what I learned, were so were very outspoken against slavery. A lot of people were taught about the Pennsylvania Quakers being instrumental in the abolition of slavery in the South. But it wasn't until 1758 that the Quakers began speaking out in their own state about slavery. And some historians believe it was just to get a target off their back because a lot of the Quakers were loyalists to England and they wanted to get their non-Quaker neighbors off their back because the winds of the revolution were sweeping through the land because soon regardless of color the status of freedom would be you know needed to be discussed with the upcoming revolutionary war well my dear niece since you opened that door let's talk about the revolutionary war and how it was intertwined with slavery in the north 
there was a sizable population of enslaved people who lived in the North. So when the Minutemen marched off to face the Redcoats in Lexington in 1775, get this, the wives, boys, and old men that they left behind took up axes, clubs, and pitchforks and barred themselves in their homes because of a widespread rumor that the local slaves planned to rise up and massacre the white inhabitants while the militia was away. Well, those may have been the fears uh, during the war that lasted five years all across the North, but both colonists and, and the British competed for slaves to join their cause. But it was the British that offered the most trustworthy offer, which is why in Connecticut, which held the largest number of slaves at that time, which was 6,464, had enslaved people escaping to British ships as early as 1776. When we think about 1776, a lot of people think about the Declaration of Independence. Those people were doing that themselves by going to those British ships. Now, for the British, advertising freedom to the enslaved was easy because not only were they giving them freedom, they wouldn't be losing any money. Think about it that way. They didn't own these slaves, so they weren't losing any money by freeing them, but they were gaining a wealth of intelligence about the enemy. Think about it. The Black enslaved population were the silent eyes and ears of the colony and probably saw a lot of intel that would be beneficial to the Brits. Now, one governor in in the South, which was Virginia, but this extended to all slaves, it was Virginia's governor, John Murray, Earl of Dunmore. He sent word to all the slaves that would fight against the American rebellion would be granted freedom. And one of the many who answered that call was a young man by the name of Titus. He was a 21-year-old slave from New Jersey who was owned by a Quaker by the name of John Corliss. But by the time Titus was 22 years old, he was being called Colonel Ty and was back in New Jersey rallying other slaves and free Black people to fight against America. And for the five years of the war, he was the terror of Northern New Jersey with his guerrilla band um raiding farms wow he (laughs) this is somebody i never heard of that's pretty cool now despite a clear offer of freedom from the british commander in chief sir henry clinton in 1779 that freedom would be offered to any negro that would desert the rebel cause a warning was also issued on july 5th 1779 that any black person captured helping the americans would be sold into slavery regardless of legal status okay so you were darned if you did or darned if you didn't (laughs) exactly now despite the unsurety of freedom there were slaves who did fight with the colonists. The African-American patriots who served in the Continental Army, though, found post-war military life held few rewards for them. State legislators like in Connecticut and Massachusetts in 1784 and 1785, respectively, banned all Blacks, free or slave, from military service. In 1792, the United States Congress formally excluded African-Americans from military service, allowing only free, able-bodied white male citizens to serve. Now, many enslaved men who fought in the war gained freedom, but others did not. And some owners reneged on their promises to free them. So imagine 
you know, if you fight for this new country, we don't know if we're going to win or not, but I'll set you free. And once they win, well, back into slavery you go. Now, some African-American descendants of the re- of the Revolutionary War veterans have documented lineage of, you know, they can trace their family all the way back to the uh the war. Uh, Dr. Henry Louis Gates and Judge Lawrence W. Pierce are examples um, of those who have joined the Sons of the American Revolution based on documenting male lines of ancestors who served in that war. Okay, so they have um, ancestors who fought with the revolutionaries, correct? Yes, they have ancestors who fought with the revolutionaries and they were able to trace that back, but sadly, they were also not given their freedom. Okay, so that's the old switcheroo once again. Well, Courtney, runaway slaves, either those that joined the British Army or just escaped in general, that was a commonplace practice in the North, so much so that it wasn't unusual for Northern newspapers to run advertisements to help people recapture the enslaved runaways. In fact, I think you're going to tell us about one such runaway enslaved woman whose owner may come as a surprise to our listeners. That's right, Aunt Carol. And since we're releasing this episode uh, either right on July 4th or very close to July 4th, I find it fitting that today's story features one of our founding fathers, none other than America's first president, George Washington. And despite fighting in the revolution and for this country's independence, today I'm going to share with you and our listeners how George Washington fought until his dying breath to make sure one Black woman would never know what independence meant. And her name was Ona Judge. Wow. Now, by the time George Washington himself was 11 years old, he owned 10 slaves of his own by way of inheritance. But the bulk of his slaves came when he married a young, wealthy widow by the name of Martha Dandridge Custis in 1759. Now, in marriage, Martha brought to the table uh, 80 more enslaved people, which would raise the enslaved population of Mount Vernon, where George Washington lived, that was his plantation, to 150. So these human beings were considered a dowry or even a wedding gift from Martha to George. Mm-hmm. Now, Ona herself, known to known by friends and family as Oni, was born around 1773 to an enslaved woman by the name of Betty and a white indentured servant by the name of Andrew Judge, who hailed from Leeds, England. And he was on a four year contract. And I want that to be very clear because a lot of people try to compare slavery and indentured servitude. This man only had to work for George Washington four years and he could leave and do what he so chose. His, the mother of his children, Betty, however, and her children could not. Big difference. Very big difference. Now, after Mrs. Mr. Judge's contract was up in 1776, no doubt, he was free and he left Mount Vernon to start his own farm. Now, he did continue to work for George Washington. There is um, some documentation that says that he was hired help here and there. And George Washington, like, loaned him some money. Um, but we don't know if this was to remain close to his children or for the money because he was an indentured servant who had nothing. So if he was getting paid now and he knew George Washington, that might have been the reason I would hope it would be because he'd want to be around Betty and his children. But we don't know what their status of relationship was. We don't know 
if that relationship was consensual. Um, but we do know is that Betty and the children did remain enslaved since slave status was determined by the mother, not the father. Now, by the time Ona was nine, she was moved into the big house of Mount Vernon and much like her mother became a talented and highly valued seamstress and was later later promoted to Martha Washington's personal maid. And that was a big deal um, because she was not free. So don't get it like she could just do whatever she wanted, but she got better clothes, better shoes. She learned the inner workings of Martha Washington's day, um, all those things like that. So she was very, very close to Martha Washington herself. Now, when George Washington became president in 1789, the Washingtons headed to New York and Ona was one of a handful of enslaved people that the couple took with them. Now, late the following year, the federal capital was moved to Philadelphia and the presidential household went with it. Now, the city of brotherly love had a thriving um, an active black community, because by this time, Pennsylvania had abolished slavery. So there was about 6,000 uh, free black people living in Philadelphia. Um, and it was starting to become a hotbed of abolitionists. And Erica Armstrong Dunbar writes in her book, Never Caught the Washington's Relentless Pursuit of the Runaway Slave Ona Judge, that Oni would be a minority in the enslaved population. There were fewer at that time, and there's a trick of how these people remained enslaved in a free state that I'll explain later. But there were fewer than 100 slaves that lived within the city limits in 1796. Now, like I said, I'm gonna explain how this worked. Uh, so many of us know that PA abolished slavery in 1780, but the Washingtons, as well as many of those who still own slaves, found a workaround to keep them, keep the slaves still and be able to live in Pennsylvania. So the trick was, is they would transport their enslaved workers in and out of the state every six months so they would not have to establish legal residency in Pennsylvania. So it was like a rotation. So as the seasons changed, so they wouldn't get caught up and had to free their slaves, the Washingtons would say, oh, we're going to take a vacation in Virginia. We'll be back in six months. And they would turn around and bring them back. And that's what a lot of slave owners in Pennsylvania did to not relinquish their property. So let me get this right, Court. The law basically was if an enslaved person lived in Pennsylvania six months in one day, let me put it that way, they could be freed. Exactly. So you're telling me that our founding father and first president found the workaround. That is exactly six months before or before the six month timetable ticked off they took their enslaved people out of the state yep they went back to virginia and it wasn't under the guise of we're going on vacation people knew what it was it wasn't just the washingtons everybody knew this because you have to remember it was now the seat of the president and a lot of these uh founding fathers owned slaves and were not residents in pennsylvania they're residents of the south so they knew well okay well for the spring you know for the winter We'll winter in the South with our slaves. And then in the summer and spring, when spring comes, we'll come back. 
and enjoy a spring in the north or the summer in the north. But yeah, that was a common practice in a lot of the states in the north because it was like, well, if you're already here and you're black, okay, yeah, you're free. But a lot of people didn't want to give up their slaves. So a loophole was found. Oh, wow. Okay. Always a way to work around and have that loophole. So, all right. So the Washingtons were doing the doing their thing back and forth to be between Virginia and Philadelphia. What happened to Ona? Now, Ona was moving up in the hierarchy and became not only the first lady's personal maid, she became her body servant. And that was the top of the top. And again, I do not want to glamorize this at all. She was still property. She was still a slave. But this was the highest level that Ona could reach in 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 the hierarchy of the Washington's uh, slaves. Now, Ona was pretty much Martha Washington's personal assistant. She would dress her. She would help her plan parties and events. She would run errands. So imagine as a slave, she was able to freely walk around Philadelphia and she came in contact with free black people, which was a shock to her. But she was able to pretty much move around as she pleased. Now, Miss Washington, and she traveled along with Miss Washington when they made that six-month trip back to Mount Vernon. Now, over more than five years in Philadelphia, traveling in and out every six months, like I said, uh, Ona met and became acquainted with the city's free Black community and people who were slaves at the time and gained their freedom either through gradual abolition, uh, gra- gradual abolition or, you know, just running away. Now, these interactions undoubtedly fueled her thinking about slavery and the changing laws and regarding that institution and possible freedom. But thinking about freedom would soon move to her planning her way to it when Ona found out that she would soon be sold to Martha Washington's granddaughter. Now, Ona, in her old age, gave two interviews about her life. And this quote right here is when she was asked about being sold to Martha Washington's granddaughter. Ona said she was determined to never be her slave referring to Eliza Custis. Now, Martha Washington planned to give Ona away as a wedding gift to her famously temperamental granddaughter, Elizabeth Park Custis. Now, when I say temperamental, I don't mean drama queen. My family sometimes says I'm a drama queen. I get that. I want what I want when I want it. But that was not Elizabeth Park Custis. When I mean, when I say temperamental, I mean dangerous, violent and abusive to her female slaves. Unfortunately, women who owned slaves were more often cruel to their female staff for several reasons. And another reason Ona feared, feared being sold to Elizabeth was her soon to be husband, Thomas Law. Now, Thomas Law had a sketchy reputation. And when he arrived in Philadelphia, he had two children. They were children that did not have a mother and he was not married. He brought two illegitimate children with him from India and that set tongues wagging in the rich communities. Uh, But Ona knew what that meant. Ona knew how the world worked, especially for enslaved women. And she knew if Thomas Law uh, was bold enough to bring these, these kids around, he was well within his rights to have his way with her and face no punishment at all. So Ona knew she had to get the freedom no matter what the cost. Well, well, wow. 
I'll tell you, Courtney, this, the odds were stacking up against Ona and looks like she was in a pretty precarious position. And, you know, the practice of giving a human being to someone as a gift is just outrageous. But again, that wasn't unusual at the time. And giving a person as a gift who might be in a precarious position like you've been describing, possibly facing rape, beatings, mis, uh, you know, abuse and so on, uh, that would be pretty frightening, I can imagine. So when we come back from break, we're going to find out what Ona decided to do when she was faced with these unsavory possibilities. Want to learn more about systemic racism? Or maybe you want to leave us a comment, rate our show, subscribe, get lots of swag, or reach out to us on social media. Well, you can. Go to our website, www.podpage.com, Why Are They So Angry? And connect with Courtney and me. You can even sign up to take our course, Systemic Racism. See it, say it, confront it. All that waiting for you at www.podpage.com. Why are they so angry? See you there. All right. We are back, Courtney, and I'm all set to hear about Ona's fate. What happened? What did she do? Well, when we left Ona, she had found out that she was possibly going to be, well, not possibly, that she was going to be given as a gift to Martha Washington's granddaughter, Eliza Custis, who was not the kindest person, and also become the property of Thomas Law, um, Elizabeth's husband-to-be with his sketchy ways. Um, So Ona had to develop a, a plan. So she was going to use the knowledge she obtained from the free Black community community in Philadelphia and get to freedom any way she knew how. So as the household prepared for the Washington's return to Mount Vernon for the summer. So in 1796, they were doing, they were going to the South for the summer. Judge made plans for her escape. Now on May 21st, 1796, she slipped out of the mansion while the president and first lady were eating dinner. The members of the free black community helped her get aboard a ship commanded by John Bowles, who frequently sailed between Philadelphia, New York City and Portsmouth, Virginia. Now, after a five day journey, Judge disembarked in that coastal city where her new life would begin. But don't think that the Washingtons were not aware. She while she was on the ship two days after Ona escaped. Frederick Kitt, Washington's steward, placed an advertisement in the Philadelphia Gazette chronicling the details of Ona's escape. And this is how it read. Absconded from the household of the President of the United States, Oni Judge, a light mulatto girl, much freckled with very black eyes and bushy black hair. She is of middle stature, slender, and delicate about 20 years of age. She may have many changes. Oh, she has many changes of good clothes of all sorts. So the advertisement also listed that there would be a $10 reward, which would calculate uh, to $221 for her capture and return. And this ad just conveyed the shock and outrage that Ona would even try to escape you know, as there was no suspicion of her going off or no provocation to do so. So they just couldn't wrap their mind 
around why she why would you want to leave they <laughs> believed that they treated her like a daughter okay. and they felt betrayed of course she didn't always want to be a slave but they were very very confused as to why she wanted to leave because she never tried to escape when she was in Virginia okay yeah I wouldn't have tried to escape while in Virginia either because the chances uh. would probably be slim to none <laughs> Now, with a free Black population of 360 citizens and no enslaved workers, Portsmouth, New Hampshire was different from any place that Ona had ever known. She found lodging with the free Black community, which was accustomed to aiding fugitive slaves and supported herself doing domestic work, which is one of the few opportunities available for women of color. Now, during the summer after she escaped, Judge was walking through Portsmouth, just walking through her hood, And that's when she saw Elizabeth Langdon, the daughter of the New Hampshire Senator, John Langdon. Now, Betsy Langdon recognized Ona from having an encounter with her when she came to Martha Washington's house. Um, And she was a family friend of Martha's other granddaughter, Nellie Custis. Now, after Judge passed without acknowledging who she was, Bessie probably told her father of the sighting, and her father felt obligated to notify Washington of his fugitive slave's whereabouts. Now, that was none of that girl's business. If the lady didn't acknowledge you, you could have just kept it pushing. But history says that Betsy probably told, you know, her father, like, hey, that's that runaway slave that the Washingtons have been looking for. Wow, what an unusual turn of events. <laughs> You're walking along and somebody out of the blue recognizes you as a former slave. Like, no yeah, and it was the summer after. So it's been a year of freedom. She probably finally took a breath, was able to move around. And now this happened. Now, trying to be discreet, George Washington got in contact with Joseph Whipple, the collector of customs in Portsmouth and the brother of famed revolutionary general William Whipple. Now, when William, well, when Whipple, Joseph Whipple, trapped down on a judge by falsely advertising that he was seeking a female Mm -hmm. domestic in his home, he asked her about her whereabouts um, and reasons for, he asked her about her reasons for fleeing from bondage and offered to negotiate on her behalf. How are we going to negotiate slavery and freedom, sir? (laughs) Like... (laughs) I'm free. I don't want to be a slave. Now, he subsequently wrote to Washington that she had agreed to return on the condition that she be freed when Martha Washington died. Now, that sounds a little suspect, but anyway. (laughs) Now, Ona never intended to keep this promise at all. She told Joseph Whipple what she thought would be the best situation for her. But it didn't matter what deal would be struck between Ona and Joseph Whipple. It didn't matter at all. George Washington was not having any of it. And he wrote back to Mr. Whipple to enter in such compromise is totally inadmissible. Now, you see throughout history, it tells us that George Washington supported gradual abolition, though he might have been in favor of gradual abolition of slavery. The president continued. He did not want to reward Ona Judge's unfaithfulness for running away because he was afraid it would inspire other enslaved people to escape. So despite saying, yeah, I'm cool with gradual abolition, that's cool, but I'm not going to reward her for running away. And I don't want her to be, you know, other slaves to say, hey, I can be like Ona Judge too. So there was no way he was going to, to, 
concede to her demands. Right. So he had to make an example out of her. So he wasn't going along with her plan. He had to institute his plan, which is come on back and be a slave. Forever. By seven, by the 1780s, now Washington's feelings, like we said, were on slavery were starting to change. And he expressed his uneasiness with this in the institution of slavery to his close friends and comrade, the Marquis de Lafayette. You might know him from Hamilton, but he talked to his friend, uh, the Marquis, about this. But his reaction on Ona Judge's escape never ever changed. He was not ready to give up on her bound labor on on his Virginia plantation. And that's where his life was built. And he was far from a passive bystander when it came to slavery. And at this point, he was actively engaging in the return of Ona Judge to his or his wife's uh, possession so it sounds no, like he's obsessed with this it's, it's like it's like this. an obs- it's an obsession it's like a I, it's like a dog with a bone so no matter who he's telling or what he's writing or what history says george washington feel felt about slavery as a whole his beef with Ona judge was real and it was what we call forever beef didn't matter she was if all slaves were free Ona judge was still going to be a slave mm. Wow. Now, with the anti-sentiment growing, anti-slavery sentiment growing in New Hampshire and the Washington's influence waning as his term ended, uh, Joseph Whipple did little more to pursue Ona Judge on his behalf, save for the time being um, that she got married to Jack Staines, a free sailor in 1797. Now, through marriage, it gave Ona an additional legal protection, but Ona remained vigilant with good reason. In August of 1799, Lord George Washington asked his nephew, Burrell Bassett Jr., to try to seize Judge and any children she may have on his upcoming business trip to New Hampshire. He's and relentless. I, this I, man was relentless. My goodness. One slave, <laughs> one enslaved woman. One enslaved woman. Now, when Bassett dined with a gentleman by the name of Langdon and told him of the situation, and that was the senator in uh, New Hampshire, the senator quickly got word through Ona Judge through one of his servants and Jack and one of his servants that this was happening. Now, Jack Staines, Ona's husband, was at sea at the time, but Ona managed to escape on her own to the neighboring town of Greenland, where she and her infant daughter hid with a free Black family, the Jacks, until Bassett left Portsmouth empty-handed. So thanks to the senator's servant, now the senator wasn't going to get his hands dirty, but thanks to his servant, who ran and told on a judge, hey, this dude is is hanging out. George Washington's nephew is hanging out at my boss's house and they are looking for you, girl, you need to get to getting. So she and her infant daughter, you know, ran. Mm. I, t- I and the more I listen to this, the more I wonder about his sanity in to pursue this one formerly enslaved person. It I just doggedly but anyway how how did this continue on what happened next (laughs) now four months later after this attempt to snatch ona george washington died freeing all of his enslaved workers according to his will though this gesture was far from meaningless it didn't go far enough Martha Washington, who lived until 1802, couldn't even legally have emancipated her enslaved workers upon her death, 
which included technically Ona Judge Staines and her children, as they were a part of inheritance from her first husband and by law went to her surviving children. I'll explain that a little bit. George Washington died and the slaves that he owned, he set them free, right? But because Oni came as a gift with Martha and they belonged to her first husband, it didn't matter what George Washington did. Those slaves, Oni and her children who had never known slavery, belonged to Martha Washington's grandchildren. Okay, so Oni and her children are living in the North. And technically, they belong to Martha Washington and ultimately Martha Washington's grandchildren. Yes, because as a woman, Martha Washington had no right to free anyone. Yes, they were her slaves, but it would have taken a man to say, yes, these belong to you. I'm going to will these to you. But because that was not in place and she gave them as a gift to George Washington, they weren't hers to free or sell. They Mm. would go to her grandchildren as property. Like if you gave me something and you said, well, Courtney, this really isn't yours. You can have it. And you pass away. And, you know, Uncle Clyde says, hey, you know, that was your aunt Carol's bracelet. It's not yours. So you need to give it to me. Because Mm. even though she let you wear it and let you, you know, do whatever you want with her bracelet, it's mine. Give it back. Oh boy. Oh boy. Well, a lot of, a lot of messed up law related to enslaved people and women. Exactly. Now, Ona Judge Staines lived with her husband and three children until her husband Jack died in 1803. Now, briefly holding a live-in position with the Bartlett family in Portsmouth, um, New Hampshire, Ona left and moved with her children, moved her children to the home of Jack's family, her in-laws, where they remained. Now, work was scarce and Ona's son, William, is to believe uh, believed to leave home in the 1820s to become a sailor like his father. Her two daughters, Eliza and Nancy, were sadly forced into indentured servitude and both died before their mother. After she became too old for physical labor, Ona herself lived in poverty, relying on donations from the community. Mm, What a sad outcome. Well, don't don't be too sad. Now, despite all the hardships, Ona enjoyed the benefits of a life of freedom. She taught herself how to read and write. She embraced her Christianity and worshiped regularly at her choice of church. So no one had to tell her where to go to church. She went to church where she wanted to church, wanted to go to church. Now, several years before her death in 1848, she granted, like I said, two interviews to abolitionist newspapers recounting her journey from bondage to freedom. And when a reporter from the Granite Freeman asked her if she regretted leaving relative luxury. So remember, when she lived with the Washington, she had as for a slave, beautiful clothes, shoes. She went to, she did so many different things. So did she regret leaving luxury in the house of the Washington's, the house of the president, as she worked so much harder after her escape? And Ona Staines memorably replied, no, I am free. And I have, I am free and I have been. I trust I've been made a child of God by the means. So it didn't matter to her that she was poor. She was free. Well, there you have it, Courtney, regardless of the possibility of luxury, the, the possibility of having fine clothes or even living in the house of the president of the United States, freedom takes precedence. Now, the story of Ona Judge 
shows just how far slaveholders would go to keep their enslaved property. Washington's devious method of skirting the law to uh, you know, hold enslaved people in bondage and his pernicious and dogged attempts to return Ona to enslavement in spite of her escape. I'll tell you, Cordy, that paints a whole new picture of dear old George Washington for me. It sure does. The image of George Washington as this honest, cannot tell a lie, respectable founding father is not quite accurate. And when you think about it, Ona really didn't belong to him anyway. After he died, it was his grandkids, but he was crazy about catching this woman. But in Carol, we've established that slavery actually did exist in the North and that there were ways like Washington's trickery to keep folks enslaved. So why do people think slavery only existed in the South? Well, you know, northern states did take steps to do away with slavery. uh, And by 1804, all of the northern states had passed legislation to abolish slavery. So that might account for the misunderstanding. But get this, even though laws were passed to do away with slavery, most of these measures were gradual. It goes back to that uh, comment you made earlier about gradual abolition. I think another reason why people don't realize that slavery existed in the North is that the abolitionists also made a pretty good case for trying to show the evils of slavery in the South, but never accepting and promoting the idea that enslavement was still going on in the North. Yeah, they did a pretty good PR uh, campaign. And also to think, you know, our first president uh, was, you know, chasing down a slave until the day he died. I don't think people wanted to hold that up as a hero in the North. Mm, if abolitionists, yeah. you know, abolition was coming, you didn't want people from the South like, well, wait a minute, you guys own slaves too. And didn't your first president participate in that sh- slave shuffling scheme? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, the shave shuffle, the, the, the slave shuffle, the slave shuffle. But even with the gradual as abolishment of slavery in the North, the threat of being returned to enslavement loomed large because of the Fugitive Slave Act of 1850. That's right, Courtney. That's right. Escaping to the North didn't mean freedom since that act made it legal to capture and return an enslaved person to their enslaver, mainly in the South. Now, there was, however, widespread opposition to the Fugitive Slave Act, and um, it made it pretty uh, unenforceable in certain northern states. By 1860, around 330 enslaved people had been successfully returned to their southern masters. And I would say, though, that was 330 too many. Now, Republican and what were called free soil congressmen regularly introduced bills and resolutions related to repealing the Fugitive Slave Act, but the law persisted until after the beginning of the Civil War, and it wasn't until June 28, 1864, that both of the Fugitive Slave Acts were repealed by an act of Congress. And remember, these are the Republicans from the past, not the Republicans now, because somebody will come up to you and say, well, remember, like, no, 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 sir, not the same. (laughs) (laughs) Keep them straight. Keep them straight. And if you want to watch a well-dramatized and true story about how insidious the Fugitive Slave Act was and the horrors that it inflicted, um, you can watch 12 Years a Slave based on the life of Solomon Northrup, who also wrote about his life. Now, it is a hard watch, um, but it is needed if you want to look into 
what that actually meant for people, the fear of what what could come of being caught up in the, the Fugitive Slave Act. Also, if you're looking to learn more about Ona Judge, I highly recommend the book Never Caught by Erica Armstrong Dunbar, uh, which also comes in a young reader's edition for all of our young historians out there. Well, Courtney, I hope this episode clears things up for our readers. Yes, there were thousands of enslaved Black people in the North, even up to the Civil War. And Northerners couldn't claim clean hands when it came to slavery, even when they did abolish the practice in their states. Because remember that strong economic link between slavery and the financial powerhouses that it created in the North, that can't be denied. In other words, the Northerners, even after they abolished slavery in their states, they still had a financial windfall by working with and sharing the wealth that came out of the South's enslavement of people. Now, I would even say, given the residual effects that 400 years of enslavement has had on America and the creation of the systemically racist institutions in this country, one might say slavery isn't really over at all. I totally agree. Now that brings this episode to a close. So as always, I hope you learned something new. And as you celebrate July 4th, think of Ona Judge and the hundreds, uh, maybe thousands of slaves in the North, as well as those that fought in the Revolutionary War. They're a part of the celebration as well. And in the meantime, on this long holiday weekend or anytime, if you're wondering what we're doing or wanting to listen to other podcast episodes that you may have missed, you can always visit our website at www.podpage.com slash why are they so angry? That brings today's episode to a close. We hope you join us next time when we continue providing the answer to the question, why are they so angry? As always, we hope you learn something so you can see it, say it, and confront it.